Hi, this is Eddie Deason. You're listening to Breaking the Fourth Wall. I was Mandark in Dexter's Laboratory. Ha 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 ha. You are listening to Breaking the Fourth Wall on Realm of the Mist Entertainment. Hey, what's up, guys? Chris Fristali back for another Breaking the Fourth Wall episode 120. And you know what? I've got a little surprise for you guys later in the show. But first, for episode 120, I'm thrilled to sit down with another podcaster. It's always fun to hear how other podcasters get into podcasting, what their shows are about, and really just seeing how diverse the podcast community is. And this one touches very close to home because this guy, like me, has a little bit of a illness, a sickness, <laughs> a disease, an infinity for probably the greatest musical genre in the world i don't care if you don't agree we all love hansen uh but really heavy metal hard rock and so without further ado host of misery point radio host of all things metal in the podcasting community mr mike peacock mike how you doing Oh, I'm good, brother. Hey, that was an epic intro. Thank you so much. I feel like such a celebrity now. <laughs> That's how I feel when I'm going to wind up on your show. It's like that is going to be the lowest rated show you ever have. <laughs> <laughs> Here come those four downloads. <laughs> Three of them are me. <laughs> yeah, and your mom and, and right, mom. your dog. <laughs> yeah, my dog, not my mom. My mom's like, <laughs> I don't even want to hear what he has to say. But nice. No, uh, this isn't about me. This is about you. So, Mike, um, Obviously, the first and foremost question is what got you into podcasting? Like, we'll we'll dig into the the genre that you chose and everything, but in general, led you to podcasting. That's a great question. I actually really like that question. So, like a lot of people, I was kind of feeling creatively stifled. Um, I come from the music business. I was a musician for a long time. I I wouldn't say I gave it up, but I, I gave it up on the professional sense, and I I really focused on career and family and you know things like that and i was working just an insane amount of hours at my job and uh, at some point i just i felt like i was kind of stuck in a corner and i had a lot of uh, a lot of crazy rants that were kind of floating around in my head and one day i was like well shit i have all of this equipment and i was listening to adam carolla and i was like i could fucking do that <laughs> so I literally just picked up a microphone and I just ranted. I just it, no no script, no no idea. I literally just hooked up the mic, pushed record and let loose. And it didn't end up being an episode, but I did record it and and what it told me was that I was kind of able to somehow piece together random thoughts and and kind of have it have it show up in in kind of a format that was entertaining and funny and and while I tackled some pretty deep topics i think in that first rant um i really had a fun time with it and i showed it to my wife and i showed it to a couple of friends and they're like holy shit dude and you know, people used to always tell me um that wow you have a really good radio voice you should work on radio and uh, i used to kind of laugh it off because you know i was a singer and so i'd, I'd practiced a lot of voice work and things like that and i just was kind of like yeah you know whatever everybody hates the way their voice sounds like oh okay you like that I mean, there must be something wrong with you 
So anyways, then I, I just kind of figured, well, what the hell, let's give it a shot. And I set up a, a host site and I just figured, what the hell, if nothing else, I'm going to have some self-therapy by talking to the ether. And for whatever freaking reason out there, people started tuning in. And I, I, I literally thought I would have no listeners. Like, who the hell would listen to this dribble? Right. And that was a different show. That was called On the Edge. And that whole concept on that was really just... Mostly rants, you know, I would just kind of go off on random shit, you know, um, and it got to be really, really super popular. And so that was kind of kind of what got me into it was I just needed some kind of an outlet to, to get things off my chest without having to debate with people and convince anybody that I was right or I was wrong or anything like that. It was literally just, I've got a bunch of shit to say and I don't care who listens. I just don't want you to yell back at me. <laughs> so it was kind of a selfish self-therapy there. That was that was what started the ball rolling back in the day. Well, that that kind of gives a that kind of gives a, a, a double-edged question here, a, a two-parter question. Uh, since you started out with on the edge, as opposed to uh, it's funny I said double-edged because you said on the edge uh. <laughs> that you started off with rants. Uh, how long was it before you transitioned into what you, obviously you you started off in? And music, and second off, on the edge. When you were doing that, how long? This is a double-edged question here. Um, how long did you do on the edge before the transition? And what were typically your your rants about? Just everyday things, or things you saw on TV, or you know? Well, I would say that the show started out like on the very first episode when I introduced it. I was like, I don't even know what I'm going to talk about. I literally just started talking, and then in the midst of it, I, I kind of went off on that very first rant was about protests, believe it or not. Yeah. And the the reason for it was because at the time, here in Washington State, which is very much, uh, we'll just say, politically active, um, protests were happening to the point where like ambulances weren't getting to hospitals, and people were dying on their way to the hospitals because people were blocking the roads. And I was like, you know what? I'm all about a good protest. I don't give a fuck. You know, if you got a cause, you got a cause. But I was like, don't block the road so people can't get to the hospital. I mean, that's completely counterproductive, and it makes your cause look like a piece of shit. You know, so I'm like, knock it off. You know, right. that was pretty much my first rant. And so it was it was weird because On the Edge, was it was a half a rant show, and then it was also half having artists come on, and I would do interviews with them. Well, at some point, it, it got to be like I was ranting about crazy stuff, and I worked retail for a long time, and so a lot of my rants were about all, all the ridiculous people that I would come across. It was kind of like clerks, right? I, I, would, <laughs> I would go on rants about just the, the stupid shit that people would do. And um, so at some point, it got to where the guests were like, you know, I don't know if I want to come on your show because you talk about all this weird shit, and I don't know if I agree with it. And I was like, eh, that's a pretty good point. I can kind of understand. So then I had this bright idea, right? well, fuck it, I'm going to do, do two podcasts. So then I started Misery Point Radio, and, you know, my uh, my initials, MP, um, somebody had said, well, you, you sound like you should be on NPR, and so I converted it to MPR, which was Mike Peacock Radio. Right. But then I was like, well, I don't, ha- don't want to have my name in the podcast because the first show was called On the Edge with Mike Peacock, and then people started Googling my name, and I was like, this is fucking creepy. Yeah. So, um, so then I changed to misery point radio because there is actually a a town uh, a little bit over for me called misery point oh wow and so i I thought it sounded kind of fucking metal so i was like fucking misery you know so i'm like misery point radio 
And it just kind of went that way. And so the idea was I would run on the edge and focus on like rants and crazy stories and just, you know, whatever. And then Misery Point would be like the artist spotlight. Well, as you well know, running multiple shows is a bitch. Yeah. It's really, really difficult to do, especially when you get into like editing and all that kind of stuff. So I tried it. I, I just couldn't hang, man. I just couldn't do the two. And so I would say that I ran on the edge was, was for a good two years. And then there was probably a six-month crossover where I was doing both. Now, technically, I haven't put on the edge to rest yet. We're going to say it's on hiatus. So I haven't ended the show. Um, I still kind of pop up with a couple of posts here and there. But, but really, I haven't actively posted a, a new episode for On the Edge in about a year. Although people call me once in a while and be like, hey, I've just found your show. I love it. And I guest on people's show sometimes and still talk about On the Edge. So it's still very much a part of me. But the musician in me really wants to focus more on sharing the, I guess, the the artistic and the creative side of the world. Because there really is kind of enough negativity in the world. And I, I kind of felt like I don't necessarily want to contribute to that. And as much as I love a good rant and a good bitch fest, um, I just kind of felt like coming from a spot where I was feeling kind of negative about life spending two years just talking basically talking shit um it kind of put me back into that zone and then i ended up getting a new job which really kind of changed my perspective on my day-to-day life and i found myself really actually in kind of just a more positive mindset and so when i approached the interviews i felt like i was getting better response to them because i was approaching it from a really more straightforward side of things rather than like a sarcastic and snarky side of things which is kind of my normal personality but misery point really has now kind of defined where I'm at in life. And now that I don't play the music anymore, I really focus on on that side of it as kind of a behind the scenes. And I don't just talk to musicians, although that's kind of my specialty and that's my area that I know. But, you know, filmmakers, authors, entertainers, comic book artists, I'm really a, a huge fucking comic book nerd and a pop culture nerd. So, you know, I, I really enjoy talking to people. It's really all about sharing creativity and positivity through art. And that's really what Misery Point's about. It just so happens I have millions of friends in the music business. And so my my pool of awesome people to talk to is just so large. It's just kind of like the low-hanging fruit. Like, I'm just going to go for it because it's fucking right there, you know? Right. Well, see, that, that that's interesting because uh, I definitely want to dig more into, into Misery Point and, and some of the guests you've had on and, and all. Uh, what's interesting is I see a similarity uh, – when I when I launched Realm of the Mist Entertainment, not breaking the fourth wall, this show, but the, the the subsequent company, I I felt the same way you did. I had to get crap off my chest, and all. I created a show called It Had to Be Said, and yeah. uh, it was the exact same thing. It was it was it was uh, me just getting on the microphone and and bitching about whatever it was that was going on. I literally handed that show off to another host uh, who, who it still goes on. She took it a completely different direction. It's now it had to be said with Venus. She she's completely revamped it to something really special um but what's ironic about it is i had to stop it because i started to realize i couldn't approach a rant objectively if (laughs) that makes sense like yeah i would see something uh, that pissed me off and then i would go off on it but i would all of a sudden just i all of a sudden became my own echo chamber if that made sense Mm -hmm. you know where i was i was actually starting to believe my own bullshit and I'm like, right. no, I gotta, I gotta stop this. This, this isn't right. <laughs> this isn't what this show is about. So it's kind of funny you kind of took the same uh, standpoint with on the edge. But uh, you, getting back to the to the topic at hand, uh, the 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 wheelhouse for you is music. And you said you were a singer and all. 
How long were you a musician? Like, what got you into music to begin with? And uh, what did you do in the music scene before podcasting? So, oh, I'm 45 years old, to, to give you some texture, because I think that's important when we talk about what was going on in the industry when I, when I started playing music. So, I was in junior high school. I was in the eighth grade. I was 14. And I was, at that point, really kind of enamored with the MTV era and I was really enamored with the the rock stars and I, I was prior to that I was really into bands you know like Dio and Iron Maiden and kind of that really early incarnation that the new wave of British heavy metal to me was absolutely mind-boggling and epic and I was just completely infatuated with like Adrian Smith from Iron Maiden and I was huge into Sabbath and I was big into Motorhead but then I also really liked the American guitar heroes like you know Joe Satriani and Steve Vai was really big into those guys and then also you know David Gilmour um, from Pink Floyd I was a big fan of his style of playing right and so I thought like you know, I had tried to play guitar when I was in elementary school, but I was playing saxophone at the time, uh, coincidentally, and I had really bad asthma, and I, I, I couldn't play the saxophone anymore. I gave it up, and so I tried the guitar, and I sucked ass. I was really bad. My hands were too small. These guitars were friggin' enormous. Right. And so a couple years later, a friend of mine uh, had, had a guitar that his grandpa had left to him, and I, I picked it up, and I played it again, and I was like, oh, shit. I can kind of play this now. So then I took lessons and I learned how to play some of the songs I loved. And so that was, you know, that era in junior high school, eighth, ninth grade. And then getting into high school is when I started kind of getting into playing bands. And, you know, that's when kind of really I, I've taken that, that, uh, from like that more traditional power metal, heavy metal. And I started getting into more progressively heavy stuff, the thrash metal, you know, Testament Slayer, Forbidden, um, and have morphed into like the death metal stuff that I that I really got into, you know, like death and obituary and possessed and all that kind of stuff. So, um, so by the time I graduated high school, which was in 1993, um, I was playing shows in bands, and I, you know, I was playing shows when I was 15 and 16, and you know, we used to play bars and get paid in beer, which was hilarious because you know, they wouldn't pay you any money, and you're like, I'm 16, I don't give a fuck, <laughs> you know. Um, so. That's from that era, changes. though, uh, uh, it really, as I, as I progressed as a musician, I, I wanted more. I was constantly like, I wanted heavier and heavier and evil and dark and nasty and just whatever would just freak people out. I, I think I really got into that whole mindset of, if you don't like it, now I like it twice as much. And so the, the, the music was a, a fantastic outlet. And I probably played, oh, man... Uh, a good ten or fifteen years before I before I really officially stopped, and you know I would occasionally go out and like do like a guest thing with with some bands, or and then I got out of the metal for a while, and then I started doing like singer songwriter, like just solo acoustic stuff, and I did that for a few years, and I really like that because you know there's nothing more intimate than like one person playing by themselves with an instrument, whether or not it's a guitar or a piano or I don't know a fucking harp or whatever you got, you know oboe. It's just really cool to sit up there and, you know, when you when you're doing that, I mean, it's all you. you're you're laid out. You may as well be naked because, you know, if you fuck that up, <laughs> there's no burying it behind a drum or, you know, a loud guitar or, you know, somebody else. So um, so I really kind of got off on that for a while. But then just as I was working 65, 70 hour weeks, you know, at that point, I just I had to make a decision. And, and so I kind of got out of it for a while. And uh, it was probably 
really only about four years ago when I had started kind of getting back into music and listening to it again that some 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 doors opened for me due to some people that I know and some some opportunities that I was given, particularly by a, a gentleman named Scott Pavarnik, who is in a band called False Prophet, um, who was around when I was learning how to play guitar. And he wasn't in the band at that point, but but the band was kind of a, a formative band in that genre. And based off uh, that interview with Scott, we became really close friends. And then subsequently I started getting access to people that I would have never in a million years thought that I could get access to. And it's really different. As you know, when you start talking to people on a, on a friend level, it changes the dynamic. It, it ceases to be an interview and it's more like a conversation, which I just thought was super cool. Right. So not only am I talking to people at this point now that I idolized when I was a kid, um, I, I'm talking to them on a level that's like we're, we're on the same level in some senses because we were in the same stuff. We had a lot in common and it's, it wasn't just a list of fucking questions and here answer these questions. Like, you know, I'm a journalist or whatever. I, I, I really tried to not take that approach. And so I've, I've been awarded many, many, many opportunities because of that particular, um, friendship. And then, and then it just kind of snowballed from there. And, and now, I'm in a position where people call me. It's crazy. Like, hey, I want to be on your show. I, I'm people from the UK, all over the world. Hey, I like your show. Now I, I feel like a dick because I can't even I can't even get back with half these people. It's it's pretty nuts. That's that's scary. I I wish I had that success. That is that is absolutely <laughs> awesome. But I'm I I know what you mean. Like uh you know I besides musician I've been a professional wrestler through through the years of my career. Uh, been an entertainer my whole life. But uh, I use pro wrestling as an example because i've known a lot of the to the stars the wwe guys the former wwe guys i mean i've gotten drunk with uh you know superfly jimmy snooka i've gotten high with rob van dam you know and and you know just not to name drop or anything but i like i've met actual celebrity wrestlers Mm -hmm. that it's same deal it's it's uh you know once you realize that they put their tights on the same way you do at the end of the day, you know, you, you, you find out you can have a friendship with them. But it's still weird Absolutely. In, in the podcasting community to sit down and have a conversation. Like th- what popped in my head when you were discussing uh, discussing that was uh, when I the time I interviewed Scotty Schwartz. For people who don't know, Scotty Schwartz was the kid who got his tongue stuck on a pole in the movie Christmas Story. Christmas Story. He was Flick. Flick lives. And I had such a great conversation with him on the interview that after the interview was done, he talked to me for another three hours on the phone and promised me the next time he's in Philadelphia, we're going to go out to a diner and just go have a meal. Just go shoot the shit. I'm nobody. You know what I mean? Like I do this shit from my basement and this guy (laughs) wants to, wants to go have lunch with me. You know, it is such a, it's, a weird experience it really is it's pretty surreal but uh but you know again so so you you you, just to get an idea like i know i know for for most people in in the uh entertainment industry just going out and performing is is success plain and simple like anybody who tells you it's only if you get a record deal whatever else you're wrong okay having the balls to go out and perform is success getting out of the garage is success but out of curiosity and just uh, for for uh, of understanding for for your career, you got into podcasting. What what level did you attain in music? the music business? Yeah, musically. 
Um, you know, I would say that in the early years, I would say lack of success is probably a, a better way to put it. Um, you know, I've, I played tons of shows, more shows than I can count. Um, and I would say that I had a chance to play in all over Washington State. I don't think, yeah, I never broke out of Washington State. So much local. Um, played on a couple of albums uh, as far as being a musician. And I would say that uh, in the probably the height of what I did was was really just kind of going on a couple of small tours outside of the cities and you know playing a couple of uh, different counties over. So you know nothing nothing mind blowing as far as that goes, um, but was able to play with I would say some pretty some pretty awesome bands that I looked up to in the area for sure. We'll see that now we're going to lead into the podcast. Now, that, that, that was the reason why I asked that question. I didn't, I didn't want to put you on the spot of like, oh, you didn't get a record deal or, or you didn't go on a world tour, nothing like that. Right. You know, it was, it was not meant as a put down. Uh, it was meant to say, now you come into podcasting, you're coming into music, you're now starting to meet these musicians and everything else. Um, yep. How similar were a lot of, first off, how similar were a lot of their stories not just the guys that are that are at the level that you were at, but I'm assuming some of the guys that you've talked to that that hit that what we call the the threshold breaker. Yeah. You know, how how similar was your story to theirs? Pretty close on on a lot of levels. I would say there. I, I did fail to mention that there was a good two years of my life there towards the end of my music career that that was my job. Like I I, I had lost my job. Um, and I put everything I had into that. And so that was pr- predominantly like my, my source of income, as minimal as it was. Right. So I, I can say that at least for about a year and a half, two years, that I was a paid musician. And that was how I, I made my side of living. Thank fucking God my amazing wife was, was doing good. <laughs> <laughs> but um, anyways, the, uh, it's really, I, I think there's a, a misnomer in from the general public that just because you're a musician and you have a record deal and maybe you've been on tour and maybe you made a fucking video that you're a successful quote unquote musician that you're making tons of money. The reality is almost every musician out there is footing the bill for their own, you know, their own studio recordings. You might have a record contract, but they're not paying for shit for you. You're paying for your own recordings. You're paying for your own tour buses. You're paying for your own, you know, PR dinners or whatever you're doing it's most of the people that I talk to are legends in their own realms but it's very it's very subjective because you know it really comes down to what you deem as success if if you deem success as I don't have to have another job and this is my job then sure some of the people I talk to are at that level and then some of them are above that level you know some are recording artists who they I mean they literally have record contracts that pay them money and pay for all of their stuff and you know then some people are like they're super popular and they're very legendary and they're still working three day jobs trying to get by because they refuse to give up that that one creative element of themselves that they feel defines them so you know if you talk to somebody who's been in a band for 20 years but they still work in a restaurant they're doing it not because they feel like, oh, I'm a fucking rock star, because it's like, I still need to have this part of myself. And when you get into those elements, you go to the shows, you see them at the clubs, and you realize that there's just hundreds, if not thousands of people that still adore them. For them, that's their life. It's not the other thing that they have 
where they're scrubbing dishes or, you know, they're waiting tables or they're, they're cooking somewhere. Even if they have lucrative jobs, lucrative day jobs, a lot of them don't want to talk about their day jobs. They refuse to talk about their day jobs. I know several people in the metal community that are like fucking stockbrokers. I mean, that, that have like corporate gigs that they just don't ever talk about, you know, right. because it's not only is it bad brand imaging, but it's just like they're not proud of that. Even if that's how they make their living, they don't identify that that's their sense of self, you know. So it's it's pretty crazy to talk to people that, that you know, for me, like I've idolized for years and you realize that yeah, this, this guy just has a fucking day job just like me. And none of them, you know, are, you know, well off from their music careers by any sense of the imagination, especially since, you know, the digital realm really took over physical media and all the money is made off of merch from touring. And if you're not lucky enough to be able to tour, you know, a dozen cities and sell, you know, T-shirts and fucking CDs at a show, you're probably got a T-Public site set up like the rest of us and hope that, you know, one guy that's not your fucking dad buys a T-shirt off you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a lot of those bands are in the same, the same bit, you know. They're not able to sell albums. You know, the tours are taking a shit, especially in the last few months. Mm-hmm. You know, so they're just regular old people just like you and me. Now, you, you you do mention that you've you've talked to a lot of like the the legends, if, if you will. What are, what mm-hmm. are who are some of the people that you brought on? Well, if you are familiar with metal, um, I would say, for instance, uh, well, of course, all the guys from False Prophet, Scott Pavarnik and Paul Ray and Craig Gillespie, um, those guys are forever in my heart. And then, of course, from Possessed, I talked to Claudius Creamer, who also played in Dragon Lord, one of my favorite bands of all time. Uh, talked to Vinny LaBella from Exhorter, Rick Roz from Death and Massacre, Michael Borders from Massacre, um, you know, geez, uh, fucking James Murphy. I mean, James Murphy from 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 Death and from Cancer and from Disincarnate and from Obituary, one of the most legendary guitarists still alive. Uh, you know, Ray Curry from Outlier. You know, there's just so many amazing people I, I mean just i could just go on and on and on and on you know it's just it's absolutely fantastic uh eric meyer from dark angel i just talked to him and dark angels one of my favorite bands of all time uh absolutely out of control and then, you know of course then there's there's joe castro who's uh just a kind of a, a modern day legend in the special effects uh, industry in film he does like a lot of horror based things um he's a, a special mm-hmm. effects guru he's a director he's a writer he's a producer um, that guy is just super fucking cool and also has a history with music and metal, which is uh, absolutely amazing. And then, you know, some local people. There's a kid named Hayden, Hayden Thomas, who I think is going to be one of the biggest names in kind of a folk rock and Americana uh, to probably come out of this state in a long time. So, um, yeah, you know, and, and, the, and there's people that I have lined up that I, I just can't divulge yet, but that I'm, I'm really excited to... To okay. be able to talk to, you. so oh, yeah, yeah, man, no it's it's been out of control. Yeah, no spoilers on this show, but it does lead me to my next question. With with having such a, a lineup of of of, uh, of celebrity, uh, I'll say celebrity level. We, we both agree that you know success is success regardless of the level of it. But sure. as far as celebrity level uh, musicians, people that the layman fan would know. Uh, you also have a lot of, like you said, local talents or, or the underground scene musicians. And yeah. I've got, I've got to ask you, which is more entertaining, like to you hearing the stories of the legends and hearing their road tales and how they came up or more listening to the, 
up and comers and the people that are looking for that brass ring? You know, it's here. Here's where the difference is. The difference is not so much that you prefer one over the other. The difference is in the response that you get when talking to them. So I've talked to people that literally, I don't know whatever reason, whether or not I made them feel obligated or maybe they were a friend of a friend and they just weren't into it, you know, and it's no fun to talk to people who just don't want to talk to you. And you don't really get that at the, say, the local level or the underground level, right? You, you get that from the people who, dude, I've done fucking 20 interviews this week. And then you go, oh, yeah, you know, I, I kind of get that. It's, and it's probably the same shit over and over again. You know, you've asked the same questions to this guy who's answered this question now 20 times this week. So it's pretty apparent when you start a conversation with somebody and that's the road it's going to go down. It's really hard. It, it's really hard, I think, to get through sometimes on that. Um, so I, I would say that the answer to the question is, is not that I prefer one over the other, but really what I, what I have noticed is that a lot of people that are up and coming are a lot more willing to kind of go the extra mile to really, I guess, put on a good show. Um, but that's not always the case. I mean, right. you know, Eric from Dark Angel, that guy, man, he hadn't done, I don't think, an interview in so long. The floodgates opened, man. I mean, he had... 35 fucking years of stuff that he wanted to get out and it was amazing and so and you know, just just so many cool people that um you know so he's he's a an example of somebody who's been around a while that is you know willing to talk about not only the history all the old stuff and you know when i talk to the the people that are i guess more on the professional level it's really cool because that's what you you don't get from the up-and-comers is you don't really get the 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 history, like their history is pretty minimal, right. you know, um, versus somebody who's been doing it for 30 years, you know, Paul Ray from false prophet. I mean, he was, he was doing this band, you know, back in the late eighties and early nineties. And, you know, he's got 30 years worth of stories to tell you, you know? So, um, the difference is really is, I, I think how often are people talking to these people? You know, people are more excited to talk to you when they haven't talked to somebody in a while, or at least they know that you're going to dare to ask them the different questions. Like, I'll ask you, hey, man, what happened? What, what, what got all fucked up? You know, why'd you guys break up? I'll ask those tough questions. How come you were fighting with this dude? What was the deal? Was that guy just a total dick? What's up? You know, and so I think people appreciate the fact that you don't just ask them the same stuff. So that's kind of the approach you have to take is different when you're talking to established people versus up-and-comers, you know, when you talk to the up-and-comers, it's going to be more like, hey, man, what are your goals? What are you trying to do? What's been your best show? What song gets the best response? You know, when you wrote the song, what were you thinking? Is that about a person? Is that about your mom, your dad, your dog, your cat? Did you fucking step on a rat when you were a kid and it fucking bit you? What's going on, you know? You want to get those stories about the inspiration, um, you're really from the up-and-coming people, and hopefully you they tell you what they want out of it and then you help them promote it and i guess that's the biggest difference is an up-and-comer they look at it like you're helping to promote them and then the established acts honestly really they're kind of like i'm doing you a favor by coming on your show you get that vibe sometimes not all the time but there is definitely those times when they're like yeah dude i'm, I'm here for you but really i could be doing something else instead no <laughs> yeah you gotta you gotta love people like that but uh Obviously, like your 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 major focus is is hard hard heavy metal. Uh, I I always hated the the subgenre of heavy metal. To sure. me, to me, metal is metal. But uh, yeah. because you're into the harder formats of metal, 
how much doing the podcast change your taste in music like uh meeting other musicians of other genres of music like has it evolved it in any way or (laughs) that's a good question man you know i guess i hadn't really thought about it in that on that level but I mean, I, I'm very open-minded, and I always have been. I've had my preferences, but, I mean, we've all listened to different kinds of music. I mean, I'm a big... I listen to a lot of metal, and I talk to a lot of metal dudes, but you know, I'm, I love fucking what I used to call when I was a kid. I like the old man rock. You know, I like the Paul Simon, and I like the Johnny Cash, and I like the, you know, the John Denver, and, you know, I kind of like that soft... You know, Gordon Lightfoot is one of my favorites. Fucking love that dude. Or loved him. He's dead now, of course. Um, <laughs> so, so is John Ember. So still- is Johnny Cash. I like all the dead people. What can I say? You can still um, love them. <laughs> so, but I mean, I, I think when you talk to people and you realize, you know, that sometimes when they talk about their influences, you realize that people come from a different background than what they end up being. You know, most people mm-hmm. who listen to the more extreme sides of metal, if they've been in the business for 25, 30 years, that shit wasn't around back in the day. And, you know, I'm from the Seattle area, as I was telling you earlier, and I grew up playing music in the late 80s, early 90s. And at that point, the shift had been going away from metal, like the hair metal kind of stuff, which I was huge into, you know, as well, that it kind of went towards the grunge stuff, you know, like Nirvana and Soundgarden. I mean, this city in Seattle was the epicenter of the alternative slash grunge movement. And... I was actually never really into those bands. I mean, even though they were crazy popular, I respected them for what they were, and they put Seattle on the map for good or for bad as far as the music industry goes, even though Hendrix had already been around, and Sanctuary, and Nevermore, and Queensryche, and you know, a lot of these bands. But really, it was that movement that that kind of defined the Seattle music scene. And so, you know, I still talk to people, and, and so my perspective, I wouldn't say has changed a whole lot, because... I enjoy breaking that mold. I enjoy kind of sometimes providing something different for people that may be not what they're expecting. And hopefully by doing so, it expands your horizons, which is why I don't only focus on music. I mean, I'm a huge fan of, as I said, pop culture, comic books. So I I really, I love to talk to people in the genres that I love, but I also like providing the listener Maybe a different take or a different perspective, or maybe you tuned into the show because you thought I was going to talk about you know metal, and maybe you didn't realize that the artist I was going to talk to wasn't even in that genre. But you tuned in and go, hey, this is just a cool conversation. This is just two people talking about awesome, funny stuff or awesome, cool stuff. Everybody's got a badass story to tell. Music aside, everybody's had some crazy stuff happen to them or some tragic stuff happen to them or some inspiring stuff happen to them. And at the end of the day, for me, what's most important is the conversation. And then all the other stuff is kind of cool, you know, bonus material. But the conversation is king. And uh, it just so happens that, you know, you tend to stick with the conversations that you feel like, I can ask you all this stuff without having it be scripted because I know it so well. And then if I have to talk to somebody outside of my area of expertise, I got to do a little bit of homework. <laughs> I've been doing that a lot for this show. Uh, <laughs> ever since our mutual friend uh, took took me on board and started sending me people, I was always like, "Well, give me a couple days to figure out who they are." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, shout out, Steve. Thanks, man. <laughs> well, the big the big thing the big thing here is that obviously you're successful. When does your show release, and where can people find it? I typically release every Monday, 
and uh, I was doing an every other week thing, and now I just I'm doing every week, and it's still not enough. So every Monday, um, and you can find it on pretty much every platform that hosts podcasts. So iTunes, uh, Google Play, Google Podcasts, uh, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Overcast, YouTube. Um, I'm a member of the Spoilerverse Network with Spoiler Country and a bunch of other cool, you know, Shooting the Sith, which is an awesome Star Wars podcast, and just just so many other cool shows on that network. And uh, so you can find it there. And I'm hosted on Podbean, so my website is uh, miserypointradio.podbean.com, and uh, pretty much and, and as I found out today, Podcast Attic, we're on there as well. So, you know, it's uh, pretty much if if there's a if it's not on a platform you want, then you better call me because I want to get it on there and uh, take over the world and and share the creative awesomeness of the universe with you. Remind me, remind me after the interviews to to pick your brain about iHeartRadio. I've been battling them forever. Um, oh yeah, <laughs> their pain. But uh, yeah, so. Yeah, definitely, and and of course, uh, your your next show this coming Monday is again the one you told me about. Yeah, Eric Meyer from Dark Angel. Um, it's a beast, and it's probably going to be two episodes, uh, which I haven't done a two episode or on Misery Point for quite some time. So, um, be looking forward to part one and part two. I'm going to launch them at the same time rather than than make you wake up apart. You know, I just I think you know uh, you'll forget half the stuff in a week. So uh, we'll. Uh, <laughs> We'll just brainwash you two episodes at a time. He knows I'm going to be listening. Um, <laughs> now, guys, normally this is the part where I sit here and I say thank you very much for hanging out with me and I thank my guests and everything else. But like I promised you at the beginning of the show, there is a surprise. And uh, this is a surprise uh, from Realm of the Mist Entertainment. And thankfully for the help of my friend here, Mr. Mike Peacock, he's going to help me launch a brand new show right here, right now. Guys, be coming back with a new panel on on this episode so it's kind of a bonus part to this episode but it is launching a brand new show for Home of the mist entertainment guys what? yeah he didn't even know that yet come back in now <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back, guys. Surprise. Welcome to In the Pit, a new show for Rumble and Miss Entertainment. I will be your host, Chris Stolle, and joining me is host of Misery Point Radio, Mr. Michael Peacock. Whoa, what is up in the pit? In the pit. <laughs> or I add the uh, special effects. In, in the, the pit. pit. Oh, there you go. Throw that delay on there. That, that's all the effect I got on this mixer. It's <laughs> <laughs> terrible. You need a board op. Yes, I need a bit. Hey, donate to Patreon. It's right down below. I need a, I need a board op. Awesome. <laughs> no, but uh, basically, this is something that I've been wanting to do for a very long time. And, and quite honestly, talking with Mike and, and setting up for him to do the, uh, the Breaking the Fourth Wall interview and setting up for me to come on to his show really lit a fire under my ass to say, you know what? I want to talk music, too. And uh, it's kind of ironic because today we weren't supposed to talk until uh, I forget when we set up for, for your show. Uh, end of the month. End of, end of the month. And uh, 
I just, I, I don't know. Like, if I was screwing around with stuff for Realm of the Mist, and I had Bon Jovi on in the background, uh, <laughs> behind the scenes stuff of Bon Jovi, like his, his uh, induction to the Hall of Fame and shit. And it just, it, it, I was like, all instantly, I just grabbed my phone and messaged Mike. I'm like, hey, you want to do fourth wall? And in turn, you want to have a conversation about music? I yeah, like, like right now. It. Yeah, I just feel like doing it. You know? So, uh, Basically, I'm making an excuse for this might be a little rough around the edges for our first episode because of it was literally spur of the moment. But uh, for future references, when this releases as its own independent podcast, it will be a little bit more structured. But really, we're just going to sit here and talk music. Um, well, I'm honored to break the cherry of this show. So uh, thank you. Thank you so much. It's a pitted cherry. <laughs> <laughs> In the pit. In the pit. But uh, so, yeah, definitely. Um, again, we from from the interview, which, by the way, thank you very much for, for joining me on that. That was awesome. Um, oh, hell yeah. But uh, again, like you have followed music your, since basically your whole entire life. Uh, what were some of your influences, you know, for, for the style of music that you played? Well, I, I think it's important to differentiate that there was influences in the sense of, of getting into music in general, and then there was influences in the sense of playing music, right? And they, they sometimes there was a crossover and sometimes there wasn't. But um, I was big as I was a kid. I was really into um, kind of the, the early early 80s heavy metal i mean i was born in 75 and you know my dad was into like classic rock and stuff like that so i mean he had like black sabbath and like pink floyd and you know like the who and Jimi hendrix and you know kind of all that you know british invasion rock um plus you know some, some pretty cool like southern american rock you know skinner and, and stuff like that as well like you know paul simon so i was a big fan of all that stuff and then i had a, a friend in elementary school who had, I remember he had a, a poster of, of Dio, the Holy Diver album cover with the fucking, uh, it, it was just crazy. I just remember going, wow, that's just really awesome. And so I started listening to Dio and then I started listening to Maiden and then he was constantly showing me all these bands, you know, Metallica at that time. I was Kill 'Em All mm-hmm. um, was, was their, their first release and I was really into Kill 'Em All and Ride the Lightning. And so, so I, I really, you know, when I started listening to music, I would say that I was really into kind of like the the early rock, you know, kind of that stuff. And then and then I got into like heavy metal um, at an early age. And then when I started playing music, I really was more into like the the virtuoso kind of stuff, you know, like your your Satriani's and Steve Vai's and stuff like that. And then as I got better at playing, I wanted more and more and more extreme, more and more and more heavy. But I was also, in that transition time, I was really big into the glam, man, like the hair metal. I love Rat. I fucking love Rat. Twisted Sister um, was, <laughs> yeah, fucking love Twisted Sister. And Rat was just so awesome. You know, and I liked, like, Poison and fucking Motley Crue and, and Skid Row. You know, I liked, I liked all that shit, man. And it's really funny because even now that I'm really into, like, death metal and stuff, like, it's a guilty fucking pleasure. Like, when one of those songs, like, if Round and Round... Or like lay it down comes on the radio. I'm like I'm fucking listening to it, you know. Right. Um, and I remember when I was in sixth grade, we were in gym class in elementary school, and the teacher said, "Hey, I'm gonna let you bring one of your tapes, because um, yeah, we still had tapes back then, <laughs> and uh, you can bring a tape in, and I'll, I'll play it during PE class while we're like running around the gym and doing exercises." And so I brought in 
uh, Slippery When Wet, (laughs) (laughs) uh, Bon Jovi, and uh, they played it. And I I hadn't thought about it, but there's that song Social Disease, right? And at the beginning of that song, it's people fucking. And um, (laughs) I, I forgot that was there, you know. And so we were running around the gym doing all of our shit. And then all of a sudden that song comes on and people just stopped what they were doing. It was like, you know, that record scratch sound, like everything stopped. (laughs) And then uh, I got kicked out of class and uh, yeah, I had to go to the principal's office and I didn't get my tape back. (laughs) And then they called my parents and they showed it to my parents and my mom was super fucking pissed. And my dad was like, whatever. (laughs) You know you got to share that story with Bon Jovi. You ever have him? On yeah, the yeah, yeah. Well, next time Bon Jovi comes to my house, I'll, I'll be sure to remind him about that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so you know, I was, I was, I was into, I was into all that stuff, and uh, you know, it, it's, it's kind of like, it's fun to make fun of it because it was super glammy, you know, and everything. And but then you also have to realize at that time, even the bands that were heavy, like Venom and Slayer and Judas Priest. They all kind of look like that. So, mm-hmm. yeah, there was, like, the girly shit. I mean, there was, like, super girly stuff, like, you know, Cinderella and, like, Pretty Boy Floyd and stuff like that. Faster Pussycat, Hanoi Rocks, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and then there was, like, that look, but that was kind of carried over into kind of more of a, more of an evil-sounding thing, you know. And Twisted Sister, I think, like, Dee Snyder, he was the perfect kind of harbinger of what was to come because he kind of really crossed genres. He was kind of this this metal rock and roll dude, but he kind of looked like a chick, but he looked like a burly chick, so he was kind of nasty and fucked up looking and kind of took that element of glam but made it more like horror glam. And uh, so I was I was really just into that stuff. And, you know, if you take... If you listen to stuff on just the music without the imagery in your head... It's completely different. My friends the band called Gwar. Have you heard of them? Oh, I know Gwar. Yeah, I've been to Gwar shows. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, oh, fucking Gwar shows, man. You get covered in, like, blood-covered semen, and, you know, they're, they're shitting all over you, and, you know, they're, yeah, they're, their shows are crazy. But, I mean, if you just listen to the music, it's really well-performed music with awesome, you know, melodic guitars and everything. So so part of part of what made that glam era so so crazy was it was at that time mtv was really in its heyday in the videos it was all about the videos you know and it was the look and the theatrics and kind of all that stuff went together so a lot of times that even transcended the music you'd have these musicians that were mediocre at best but they just had that look that that they capitalized on you know so um and then now if you if you go and you see or hear bands that used to look like that they don't look like that anymore it's like a bunch of fat 50 year old white dudes in their fucking jeans and and wife beater t-shirts you know that's uh (laughs) well that's pretty much what they look like now well it's funny you kind of you kind of paint that in that light because one of the topics that i wanted to discuss tonight was uh glam rock uh but you know and its influence in, in music today uh, and and the fact that it was a serious genre of music. Oh, um, for sure. You know the '80s glam rock scene. But uh, you're right. It was a victim. It was a victim of commercialization. But it's funny that in in its own right, and you mentioned with Twisted Sister, and I, I I laughed. You saw me laugh when you were mentioning bands like fucking Faster Pussycat. Yeah. Uh, that even in glam rock, it had its own sub genres of of yeah. uh, of uh, musicians because. Uh, 
you had your radio safe bands like Cinderella and Poison and and you know and the like White Lion but then you had bands that quite honestly like you think you know Social Disease was a bad song to play to at a uh, you know at a gym in an, in an elementary school pick anything <laughs> from Faster Pussycat or Jackal oh yeah you know <laughs> Jackal yeah it's funny you mentioned White Lion too because you know White Lion was that band that they were all actually quite accomplished musicians. And Vito Brada is, in my opinion, <laughs> one of the best guitarists that ever picked up a guitar. And at the height of their popularity, he quit the business. Just just quit, up and quit, moved to Italy, took care of some family business, never fucking came back, right? And he, he might have come back to the States, but he never came back to the business, wouldn't do interviews, wouldn't do press, wouldn't talk about it. And to this day, from what I understand, if you ask him a music question... He's kind of a dick about it. He's like, dude, that was so long ago. He's like, I haven't done that in years, you know. Um, so I, I always thought that White Lion was kind of that band that was that was kind of on the verge of really creating their own style of music. Um, I really actually liked that band. At least the first album I thought was pretty awesome. I think it was called Pride. Um, the second album I, I don't think I gave two shits about, but that first album I thought was really good. Well, I yeah, give, it, I give them credit on the second album. I think it was the one where they did the cover of Radar Love by Golden Earring. And, they did, uh, yeah. And I th- I thought that was a great cover. You know, I, th- the problem is, is I can't think of any other song on that second album. That's I, a, that's <laughs> exactly it. You, there's no memorable songs on it. It's not that they're bad, you know, but they, you know, they just don't they don't stand out on their own right. You know, you can't you can't think of you know when I think of White Lion, I think of like Wait, right? That right. being the quintessential song, and then they had that that Uber ballad uh, when the children cry. They had that really awesome twelve string. Uh, which I learned how to play, and I fucking bragged about that forever that I could play that song, and uh, that was that was a, a a pretty awesome badge of honor. Everybody was calling me a pussy, but <laughs> I could play that, and I could play "Wanted Dead or Alive," you know. So on the twelve string, I and I just scared. thought I was the shit. <laughs> I was always scared of twelve string. I don't know. It's a, I know it plays yeah. like a six string, but I was always scared of it. I'm like, ah, it's six yeah. more strings. <laughs> There you go. Sounds great, but it scares me. But um, yeah. no, I, and that that was something I wanted to discuss because it does have such a bad reputation. But like when I sit down and I listen to shows on on like Sirius XM, for example, uh, there's a there's a channel devoted to the '80s hair band movement, '80s and '90s hair band movement called Hair Nation, <laughs> and. I sit there and I, I listen and, you know, they play the programs and they play Rat, they play Poison, they play Queensryche, they play, you oh. know, Motley Crue. And, you know, you're, you're just sitting there and it's like, like you said, you take you take away the imagery of spandex and uh, hair Aquanet and <laughs> you really start to break down the fact that these guys were hella talented musicians and there were some really, really strong songs that came out of that era, some of which never got radio play. Like, you know, for the, one of the best examples I can give, I you know, that comes to my mind is like everybody knows uh, Great White. And they mm-hmm. obviously they know the song Once Bitten, Twice Shy came off of the Twice Shy album. That's yep. like their uber hit. But to me, the greatest song that came off of that album was uh, uh, The House of Broken Love, which was just a slow, bluesy you know i love the guitars in that song um and i actually really liked the angel song um and i transposed all the piano music and learned how to play it on the guitar 
Um, and that was one of the first songs I ever played as a solo artist and I fucked it up, man. I just butchered it. It was terrible. (laughs) Um, but I, so I learned it and I could play it. And then I thought that that would translate into me being able to play it live, which sadly was not the case, but yeah, house of broken love had that really, really, really awesome, uh, very bluesy feel to it. And then they also did a cover of babe, I'm going to leave you, which is a Zeppelin song. Right. And, that is probably the best Zeppelin cover I have ever heard. And I, I guess I never really got into Great White in general, but they had those select few songs. I always thought that Mark Kendall was a really underappreciated guitarist. I thought as far as guitarists go, he was kind of like Vito Brada. He kind of sat in the background. He really avoided the limelight. Uh, Great White, everything was all about Jack Russell, right. which is really funny because, you know, that's a fucking dog, right? And Jack right. Russell... Um, and, uh, by the way, (laughs) and then, yeah, right. And then of course they had that, that tragedy, you know, a few years back where they were playing that club and there, they had, uh, some bad pyrotechnics and they caught the club on fire and people died. And that was pretty much the end of great white because it was deemed to be the fault of their crew. And, uh, I mean, it, it sucks to place blame on it, you know, but, but ultimately it was determined that, that they weren't supposed to, there was a no pyrotechnics clause at the club and they did it anyway, right. you know? And, uh, the club, as it turns out, was also partly at fault because they weren't up to fire code. <laughs> so they had two negatives going against them at that show. And the fucking cosmos said, today's the day, motherfuckers. This is it. This is, we're going to we're going to call in these chips and it was just a sad, sad day. And I, I you know, they never recovered. And then I, I think, I don't know, was it Jack Kendall? One of the great white guys died in that show too. I think so. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was just a, a sad, a sad thing, but, uh, I did, I did like a select few songs from them. The once bitten album, I can't think of a single song off that, that I, that no. I can even remember. So, well, um, yeah, so it goes. I mean, I'm kind of the same way. Like, uh, you know, like I mentioned Queensryche, for example, as, as an example. My favorite band of all time, by the way. Queensryche? Of all, of all time. I Absolutely. love them. I love them, but I'm going to say something that's kind of uh, to, to the Queensryche fans uh, is kind of heresy. I actually okay. prefer Empire over Operation Mindcrime as far as an album is concerned. Yes, it was a little bit more uh, radio friendly, but I thought the songs were a lot deeper. Yeah, I, I uh, Mind Crime is is my favorite album of all time, but I absolutely love Empire, and I, I thought that Empire had more. Um, it, it, Mind Crime was really a story, right? And, and if you didn't listen to the whole thing and learn the whole thing and commit the whole album to memory and really dig into it, mm-hmm. you didn't really get the most out of it. The songs wouldn't have made sense to you. They weren't designed as singles, right? They had some singles that were good, and they they did okay. But when Empire came out, especially that song Empire was very anthemic. It was a super powerful song. Um, they, so they had an awesome mix. Uh, Jet City Woman, uh, uh, written about Jeff Tate's wife, mm-hmm. was a, a pretty awesome song. And, of course, anybody in Seattle, Jet City is a nickname for Seattle. Um, and, of course, we have the, the, the airports and the Boeing airstrips, and people like to go and look at the jets take off and things like that. Right. Um, so that was a great song, and another rainy night without you. So and, and, you know, Della Brown, which I think is a really, really, really awesome kind of a half ballad, but it's kind of a social commentary. So I, I definitely think that that album, aside from Mind Crime, is probably my my next favorite album. Um, but I do like to also go back to the old stuff because the old stuff was really, you know, Mind Crime 
ended the metal era of Queensryche, and right. they really kind of, you know, Empire had some metal vibe to it, but they really kind of backed off. But the first couple Queensryche albums, super thrashy, really fast guitars, shredding soul, like shredding face melting solos. Um, and then, you know, Empire kind of marked the, the turning point. But it was also that because I'm a huge Queensryche nerd, that's really after that album, they started to have internal band struggles. And as a result of the power struggle, that's really when you started to see things sadly fall apart. Major issues between Jeff Tate and the other, and you know, uh, uh, Mike Wilton and Chris DeGarmo, you know, the songwriting teams. They became factioned. I wrote this song, you wrote that song. And then in the music business, the money and recording is made by who gets the songwriting credit. Okay, so if you play on an album, but you don't write any of the songs, you don't get the same amount of money. So it, it turned into a, a business fight. And then there was a, you know, a whole big mess, which we could do an entire episode just on that. And I won't <laughs> bore you to tears with that story. No, but, but needless to say, yeah, Empire um, is a fantastic album. And I don't fault you, my friend. Um, we may not be on the same page as far as that goes, but I, I'm right there with you. I mean, it's, it's, Kind of depends on you know what you listen to Queensrÿche for, and I'm a huge fan of concept albums. I love a story, so you know Queensrÿche, and then like even the Tommy from the Who, and then you know all the King Diamond stuff, uh, you know with like uh, Abigail and all that kind of stuff. It's just so awesome. Oh yeah, I've got nothing against concept albums. I mean, one of the one of the all time greatest albums, you know, in my opinion. You know, and, and a lot of other people's opinions was a concept album. That's Pink Floyd's The Wall. But I absolutely. Mean, but I mean, you know. I don't know. There's just something different. Like you, you mentioned a lot of great songs off of Empire. Of course, you forgot Silent Lucidity, um, <laughs> which was like their mega hit off of that album. But That was the mega hit. Honestly, though, not my favorite. <laughs> no, not not the favorite, but it was a mega hit. But quite honestly, what made me, I'll tell you, the first track was the one that made me say this was the better album because of how different of an opening it was for an album. And that was Best I Can. Yeah. And, and it's the not only was the sound completely different, like you said, they they kind of strayed away from the the heavy metal aspect and and went more. I I, I don't know what the correct terminology would have been, uh, but just the, the the tonality of the lyrics, what the song was about, how relatively dark it was, with yet still being a a inspirational song. Uh, in its own right, was just like, wow, this is some other level writing. It's funny you mentioned the inspirational aspect because that song got licensed to a bunch of commercials and like a bunch of, you know, causes that use that as kind of their vehicle. And um, yeah, yeah, they had a chorus, you know, and I won't let go, you know, and it it just, it was very, it was very uplifting. And I I think Mm -hmm. that that's probably the only song of theirs that I think, of all their albums really has that message. Um, yeah, great song. And I love the guitar work in that song too. So, uh, yeah, really, really catchy, great opening for sure. Uh, so, I mean, you know, that, but you know, as far basically the conversation that I wanted to have here was like looking back, even listening to, to the radio. And again, like you said, not watching the old music videos, not, not seeing the old press photos, but just listening to the music and the genre that it was, I'm of the opinion that especially in today's music scene, not just not just rock and and metal, but just music in general, I wonder if uh glam metal, the 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 hair bands of the, of the 80s and 90s, 
if they never existed in the 80s and 90s and if they came out today, would they have the same influential impact that they did back then? I don't think so because it was a transitional time. And right now isn't really a transitional time. I think that they would probably still be respected. Like if let's, you know, I mean, as a case in point, I mean, you know, like Brett Michaels is still around doing stuff, but he's doing his own thing, right? He's not playing that stuff anymore. He's kind of gone almost more country, kind of more rock Americana stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think if you strip away the imagery and you get down just to musicianship, it's all solid. But I, I don't think it will make a comeback. So I think that if it had not come out in that time frame, um, I think that you might have not seen some of the like more power metally bands, you know, like we'll say Dream Theater or you know stuff like that. Maybe would have Fate's Warning, you know, might have taken a different approach to things. Um, but the 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 new wave of British heavy metal, like your Maidens, your Dio's, all that kind of stuff, was still around, and the sound was relatively similar. So the sound of glam really didn't have as much of an identifier as like the British heavy metal or the power metal or things like that. It was, it was kind of on that verge of rock and heavy metal. So it was influential because it was kind of a stepping stone. But now if it came out and there's already heavier stuff out there, it would really be more like a, well, I don't want to listen to heavy stuff. So I want to take a step back, but then if you're going to take a step back, now you're back into maiden and you're back into Dio and you're back into, some of that kind of stuff. So I think it would still be good and I think it would still be accepted and I think it would still be popular, but I don't think it would be influential. Well, the re- the reason I asked that question, and again, like, like I said, before even doing this, co- uh, the, this conversation, I was watching a behind the scenes of bands like Bon Jovi and, you know, from my own research, you know, Bon Jovi's like the, the standard for, for glam metal as far as it's still existing. Uh, yeah. The fact that he's getting ready to release another album this year, you know, is is unprecedented for a band that, you know, it, from his own words, shouldn't still be around. But he found a way to <laughs> reinvent himself. Um, he did without his core members. Without his core, even with the core members. I mean, he went through the transitions after uh, the Keep the Faith album. And some things hit, some things didn't, you know. But he, either way, he's kept himself relevant. A hundred million albums, you know, sold. The guy's now in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I mean, that's not bad for what was considered a fad in the 80s as far as the glam rock is concerned but yeah what brings me to it is like outside of people like bon jovi who who reinvented his music and his style to keep himself relevant in the modern times you look back and just out of all the bands that are still working and there are still some from the 70s i know maiden still goes out on tour once in a while and you know, ACDC when when they have Axl Rose up front because Brian can't hear no more. Um, He's back, by the way. Yeah, I did hear he was coming back. Um, you know, these guys these guys are still out there, but for the most part, the like you said, the new wave of British heavy metal seventies, early eighties bands have all kind of fallen by the wayside. Then you think about sure. like you were talking about with the grunge acts and the, uh, the, the 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 modern alternative acts. A lot of them have disappeared that were the trends and fads. But for some reason, whether they reinvented themselves or they're still just living off of their greatest hits, the glam bands haven't really diminished. They're still out there. They're still putting out albums and still touring. There are, and it's the nostalgia factor, I think, that kind of keeps them going. And, you know, 
they're not they're not necessarily gaining new fans as much as retaining old fans, I think. Um, and, you know, I, I use like, uh, like Bon Jovi, I think is a good example. I mean, Bon Jovi now versus Bon Jovi 30 years ago is, is it's, it's, you wouldn't even know it was the same band, right? If, if right. you didn't already know about them, you would listen to those songs and not even think even his voice sounds different, you know, the way he sings and, and, the kind of stuff he writes mm-hmm. um, actually kind of reminds me of like a like a John Cougar Mellencamp, but with a heavier edge, right? And that's kind of what Bon Jovi reminds me of. I would have said, but I would have said but more now, Tom Petty, I mean. but yeah, I, I would have gone more Tom Petty, but yeah, I'm, I, I could see what you're talking about. So you know, I, I think that a lot of those bands that are around, you know, like ACDC, you know, they're they're great bands, but sure, at some point, these guys have been around for so long, it's not their new stuff that people give a shit about. It really isn't. Like, mm-hmm. there could be a new ACDC album tomorrow, and people would buy the hell out of it. But, you know, if you went to an ACDC concert, and they didn't play, you know, fucking, you know, Back in Black, or they didn't play, you know, fucking even Jailbreak from back in the day, all those stuff that, that's the... That's the the bane of every performer that has played the same shit for thirty years. There's no way you can't play it. So now you've got to play a three hour concert. <laughs> you know, good luck trying to sneak something new in there. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's it's still there. It's still relevant for sure. But it's it's a select few bands that have the staying power. I mean, Cinderella is a, is an example I like to use. I think Tom Kiefer is a fantastic musician. He went through some some crazy bullshit with a nasty about a throat cancer that literally killed his career for a few years mm-hmm. he came back he couldn't hit the high notes um so he then he worked on his voice now he can hit him again so cinderella still plays tom Kiefer still plays and tom Kiefer plays cinderella songs because now there's a licensing issue um but it's still good right he still does a good job but the draw you know for instance he's not playing stadiums right. you know he's playing He's playing small venues, which honestly, as a music fan, I hate large venues. I fucking will never, ever in my life again go to a show in a stadium. I won't. I don't give a fuck who it is. I won't go see a show in a stadium because it sucks. Um, I saw Tom Petty in a stadium, and it was awesome, but I had good seats, and he was way the fuck out there, man. And I had to watch the show from a monitor. You know, right. I didn't pay 250 bucks a ticket to watch tv <laughs> you know <laughs> but when i when i go and i see Queensryche and they play here locally in town and i can go see them at a casino with less than 500 people and i can walk right up to the stage and watch todd the the singer who by the way is fucking legit grab a fan's phone take that phone and video himself and all of his band members with a fan's phone and then give it back to him and then fucking, you know, give him, a, give him a dap or something. That's just fucking cool. And you can get right up on them and, you know, they'll do their theatrics for you. And there's, there's nothing like it, you know. So the big shows are awesome. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I saw Pink Floyd and Roger Waters and all those guys. You're not going to see those guys in a small venue. It's physically impossible, you know. But in at least those bands, they put on such a show. You know, they have props and shit falls down from the ceiling and all kinds of stuff. But... Mm-hmm. You know, you're not going to get those carryovers from from the 80s and 90s playing shows like that anymore. I mean, ACDC will still play shows like that, but you know, they're they're one of the very few. Guns and Roses doesn't even play stadiums anymore. You know, so um, it's it's the the answer to your earlier question is would it have the same impact? And I, I would say that I don't think it'd have the same impact. 
but but I think that it would still have a big impact for sure because there's still a, a level of talent that's there, and it did lead to other things. I just think at that time, the the 80s and 90s was such a such a crowded time frame because that was I think when music with with MTV everything came out of the woodwork. Everything was experimental. Everything was was a transition point. And then when that kind of went away, when MTV pretty much became more about shows and less about music, people stopped giving a shit about what bands looked like and, and all that stuff. It just kind of went by the wayside. It became a non-factor. And a lot of those bands that were banking on an image versus their music, even if they were super talented, just they, they kind of lost relevance because people stopped looking at them. Well, it, it's kind of funny because, like uh, like you said, as far as its, uh, its place as a transition and I, I think about this myself, like they were kind of the start of blurring the lines of where music came from, really. Uh, yeah. Because, you know, like you like we talked about, you know, the, the beginning of the hair, the hair revolution, if you will, was the Sunset Strip. We, we all know Motley Crue. Oh, hell yeah. You know, L.A. Guns and, you know, band, <laughs> bands like that were, were Sunset Strip bands. But like we mentioned, you had Bon Jovi, Cinderella, Skid Row you know, uh, coming out of the woodwork, coming from the East Coast, and uh, they were giving that quote-unquote Sunset Strip sound from a completely different format of the of the world. And then, of course, it influenced other people, like one of the people, I'm going to drop your draw here for a minute, started, <laughs> started bringing other bands around, like the Moscow, Moscow hair metal band Gorky Park. Gorky Park, yeah, I remember Gorky Park. They were fucking terrible. I'm sorry. <laughs> they, their first album wasn't that bad. I mean, they had uh, they had a nice ballad in uh, "Try to Find Me," and uh, that's and, true. And uh, the you know, "Bang" wasn't too bad, uh, but <laughs> that cover of "My Generation" by the Who was horrible. That was, dude. <laughs> that was cringeworthy. Like at best, it was cringeworthy. But yeah, I mean that. But you know that that era even get back to the you're right the the kind of that the soviet explosion in the states i mean it was all about they were so much into like levi's and blue jeans and kind of our culture and they wanted to embrace our culture and and you know they really tried to make it accessible i think uh you know in the same way that you know kind of like the scorpions came out of germany Mm -hmm. and um, they really had a very American sound. You wouldn't have listened to them singing and be like, wow, this is a great German band. You right. know, um, you just wouldn't have, except same thing, except, you know, with Balls to the Wall. Um, they were kind of on that verge of almost being hair metal, but they just kind of went a little bit more harder edge. Mm-hmm. But they were all glammed up with their fucking spandex and their tight pants and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, but <laughs> Corky Park, man, I, I'd forgotten all about those guys. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go buy that album now. <laughs> Good luck finding it. But Good I mean, luck finding it, yeah. I'll import it from Russia. But, I mean, it, it was kind of like the first era that, that kind of blurred that line. Like, you know, even even rap during the time was East mm. Coast, West Coast, and, and everything else. But, you know, the, the rock scene, particularly the glam rock scene, the line blurred. Where it was just yeah. it was glam rock. It didn't matter if it was a British band, a, a Russian band, a German band. They were glam rock. It wasn't East Coast rap, West Coast rap. It wasn't Seattle grunge. It wasn't, you know. Yeah, no, it's true. It was it was it was about the style, not about the region. You know, and and so that definitely was a transition. But I, you know, one of the biggest things from that I think came from glam rock, and I, I even attributed it to myself. 
like when I started off the show, I asked you about uh, uh, influences to your music. To give you an example, some of my influences as a songwriter, because I'm a singer-songwriter mainly, is uh, like I could point out, and my shit's eclectic, okay? So, of course, there's Trent Reznor, <laughs> Nine Inch Nails. I love that word. Yeah, Trent Reznor, Nine Inch Nails, and, and Kurt Cobain, Nirvana, you know, and uh, I draw influences from uh, James Hetfield and Metallica, and uh, one of my all-time influences is Jim Morrison of the Doors. But I find myself also drawn to Sebastian Bach and Dave Salbo. You know, I find myself drawn to the writing styles of like Jack Russell, like I said, the, the uh, House of Broken Love. You know, sometimes it's not just the body of work, but just one particular song that that songwriter grabbed for me. And, and nine times out of ten, it was some glam song that somebody forgot about. You know, I you mentioned uh, Sebastian and Snake, and I think uh, that first Skid Row album was really heavy. I mean, the guitars on that were so good, and uh, Youth Gone Wild, I think, became kind of the the new anthem for the glam movement hmm. um, when they came out. And uh, Sweet Little Sister was my favorite song off that. Because it was just a nasty song, right? It was just such a fucking like wow. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that was a those were great songs. I, I think that they had something above a lot of those bands. And so I, I can see why that you would have taken inspiration from that because you know they Skid Row was different at that time. Even among that style, they really stood out. They were the new kids on the block in the glam scene when they came out. They were and they fucking hit it hard when they came out. And uh, everybody wanted to look like Sebastian Bach. All the chicks just lost their shit over this guy. And I remember thinking, why do you like a dude that looks like a girl? <laughs> you know, as a Sebastian Bach, he had the fucking pipes, though, man. That guy's range was fucking insane. Oh, absolutely. And I, you're right. I mean, you know, he was he was so fucking skinny. Like you, you watch the uh, Wim <laughs> Wembley Stadium concert. Uh, Skid Row at Wembley Stadium. I mean, if he turns sideways and stick his tongue out, it looks like a zipper. But I mean, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, a zipper with hair. But I mean, you know, Sebastian. Yeah, was the 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 chops. And it's funny because my tag team in, in pro wrestling was Youth Gone Wild, named after the song. We used the song. Oh, as crazy! Our entrance. Um, it definitely was. But it's kind of funny because you say the first album was really really heavy. The only thing I got to disagree with is it was heavy for glam of the time, mm -hmm. but it was forgive this term here, but it was pussy compared to Slave to the Grind. Yeah, you know, it's really funny. From a Sonic standpoint, you're right. Um, for whatever reason, though, I just I, I couldn't pick up on it. And uh, even when I was still into it, Slave to the Grind, it was it was slower, and the guitars were, like, sludgier, and they had more, more riffs versus more licks. Right. Um, so it's definitely a heavier album than than the debut album but i it's it didn't have the same impact on me as when that first one came out and but i mean you're comparing that to like you know motley Crue and cinderella and you know at that time it was like britney fox was super popular winger and <laughs> so a lot of those bands <laughs> winger i'm not gonna lie I, I had a couple fucking winger albums you know yeah. uh red beach he's awesome you know kip winger he's a, he's a great ballerina and uh, you know he's remember, he's kind of creeper. I don't, I don't remember Winger's. <laughs> but, uh, I don't remember Winger's guitarist, but he he could shred. Like he got no yeah. That's credit. that's that's Reb Beach. Was that Reb um, Beach? Reb Beach. That that was um, the name. Okay. That, that was the their guitarist name. Yeah. That well, their lead guitarist name. 
And uh, they actually have three guitarists because Kip also played guitar and bass. Um, but but anyway, I digress. Um, yeah, yeah, they were they were super. Winger was just they they were just they capitalized on it, but they they never you know fucking they were they were they were very short lived. Um, Skid Row had pretty lasting you know presence on the scene up until the time they broke up. You know, a few mm-hmm. few albums later. But uh, yeah, man, it's it's a uh, slave to the grind. I can't believe I'm talking about this, by the way. It's so funny. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Slave to the Grind was definitely a good album, but same thing, man. I don't know what it was, but like to this day, I I can't even name a song off that album. Um, It just didn't hold me, I think. And maybe because it was at that point, I had already started moving into a heavier direction. And uh, I, I had kind of dropped that whole movement as I, as I really wanted to identify more with like, the thrash and the speed metal. I mean, I was gotten gotten into Metallica pretty heavy at that point and right. uh, Testament and Slayer. And, you know, that was, that was pretty much the beginning of that movement for me. But, you know, even into those times, I kind of still went back and I'd hear those songs on the radio and I'd be like, yeah, dude, this was the shit back then. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you, since, since you transitioned for out of the glam rock into the uh, thrash and, I, I guess for that era, it was kind of still kind of the new wave of British heavy metal, American new. Wave. The American style, yeah, for sure. the The early '90s was really, I think, the equivalent of the new wave of British heavy metal. You can call it the the new wave of American glam metal. <laughs> well, since since you were going through that transition, it, it's a perfect transition for this question. Then, Did, when you were transitioning into the thrash, into the death, into the the the, the black uh, subgenres of metal. Did you find yourself finding influences in those genres? That's a fantastic question. I, I think the answer is is yes, because what was happening was whether or not it was an influence is really hard to say, but you could definitely hear telltale signs. And a prime example of that is that bands like Metallica still had ballads, right? They had like, um, you know, one, of course, which is actually the song that put Metallica on the mainstream map mm-hmm. and it was the, the lightest song they'd ever d- done. Although for all intents and purposes, that's a heavy ass fucking song, right. it, especially, you know, as it progressed past the, the clean vocals. And then, um, you know, you had fade to black from ride the lightning, which had the clean vocals. And so, and then, you know, Testament, they had their ballads. In fact, they had a song. It was just called the ballad. Mm-hmm. So, a lot of those thrash bands, especially in the early days, you know, as they were kind of getting heavier and heavier, they were struggling now with that. I want to be heavy, but I really need to get something that'll get me on the radio. And so I'm not going to go so far as to say that those bands wrote sellout songs because they're good songs and they still had thrash elements. But I think that they were struggling to find out, hey, who is my audience? Is my audience going to be the diehard thrashers or is my audience going to be the crossovers that are just now finding my stuff and they don't really know where they want to go with it. So I would say that those, those, those influences and relics were, were definitely there. Um, I don't know if I'd say that it really went too far past that early, you know, late eighties, early nineties, maybe into the early two thousands as, some of the bands that stayed in that thrash genre, genre still kind of had those elements. But when you start getting into, you know, the, the different, 
um, you know, like death metal, for instance, that, that that influence is pretty much all but wiped away. Although you can see that some of the guitar virtuosos that ended up into those bands that were using really advanced technical riffs because these guys came from like, you know, Guitar Institute and Musicians Institute and, and they became really technically proficient that you can see a lot of stuff that was very uh, predominant, you know, back in the days with like, you know, Jason Becker and the and Marty Friedman who ended up in Megadeth, but he was in Cacophony and, and you know, a lot of those guys that, that had a lot of, you know, what the glam guys were doing. Um, you know, Paul Gilbert, for instance, uh, is is still super highly regarded and, and he was kind of a, a rocky, glammy kind of a guy at the outset and then now he's just kind of a, he's just a shredder, you know, and so I think a lot of that stuff carried over as far as the lead guitarists go in, into metal, for sure, I don't think many other techniques carried over. But the the lead guitar in metal, uh, for those that are like consider themselves to be accomplished metal musicians, still have a lot of the same techniques because those were schooled techniques. You know, CC Deville was a fantastic fucking guitarist, and he's 100% self-taught. And you can hear a lot of the stuff that he played really was very metal. Um, outside of Poison, who knows what he could have done in like a thrash band, but that motherfucker had some chops and he could shred and he could play awesome riffs and uh, he experimented with some down tunings and things like that, which kind of became the calling card of a lot of heavier music. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so you can definitely hear kind of that element in, in some of the some of the early metal, you could definitely get that carryover for sure. Well, I, I think I think I I slightly agree with you in the fact that like it, it didn't carry over predominantly as as strong as it did during the American wave of of, of metal um, to to modern day. But I, I do disagree a little bit. I think there is kind of a resurgence in some of the more commercial friendly uh, quote unquote metal bands. Again, I may get shot for this, but like I'm pointing <laughs> I'm pointing at bands like uh, Trivium. Or yeah. Avenged Sevenfold, uh, with the with the ideas of Sinister Gates solos, the, the Avenged Sevenfold specifically, you know, Sinister, Sinister Gates uh, solos, the the uh, the uh, uh, harmonic guitars between him and and Jackie Vengeance, and of course the vocal harmonies that that the whole band comes in. That's very much '80s rock. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you that. That's that's a that is actually a, a very prime example of that coming back. Um, can't say I've ever really been too much into Avenged Sevenfold, so my my knowledge of them is pretty minimal. But those elements are definitely there, um, and they, they definitely I think made made an impact um, when like the new metal bands became popular, like you know your Disturbed and and stuff like that kind of hit the scene, and then Avenged did come back in with a lot of retro elements. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, dude, you you nailed that one right on the head. That's that's pretty accurate. That, that, that was something I was thinking about. I mean, maybe not so much in the underground or, or in the uh, subgenres of, of, of metal, like, you know, but uh, at least in the commercial commercialized metal that you still hear on the radios, I, I have started to notice some of the trends of, of that genre coming back, you know. Yeah, and, you know, bands like, uh, like Dragon Force, for instance, um, they are kind of a, a hearkening back to those old, you know, cacophony days where it's just like really just lightning blistering speed kind of set behind a, a pretty medium paced rhythms but you know some really complex riffing though and i think dragon force is one of those bands that not a lot of people really know them by name but then when you hear one of their songs you go i know that song and they are very 
reminiscent of some of that era as far as like the guitar solos and some of the movements go for sure it's funny whenever you mention dragon force the first thought that ever comes to my mind when i when i listen to them is like this is iron maiden turn with the speed turned up <laughs> yeah right <laughs> I, I hear a lot of maiden influence in uh in uh uh dragon force especially in the song valley of the, Dam- uh, the damned yeah you know that- when i think of dragon force i think of guitar hero and rock band because I spent uh, many years working for GameStop selling those games, and I don't remember if it was Rock Band. I think it was Rock Band uh, 4, maybe. But uh, there was a Dragon Force song on there, and like that was the mark of if you could master that song is if you could play Dragon Force on hard, and fuck no, I could never even get close to that. But it's kind of funny you mentioned that because that was going to be one of the questions I was going to throw out there too. Do you think video games have, have helped the resurgence of the '80s hair scene and maybe taken it out of the uh, out of the obscurity of oh that was just an '80s fan with with gimmick clothing and and brought new fans in you know playing the, the video games like Guitar Hero or or Rock Band and happening to jam out to Living on a Prayer or uh, Girls Girls Oh Girls. fuck yeah. Yeah, 100%, because, you know what, I, I don't, here's the cool thing about, like, Guitar Hero, for instance, which was predated Rock Band, but you would play that game, and you found yourself liking every goddamn song on that game, regardless of what you grew up listening to, because now it was part of an experience that you had to master, and you had that, I'm playing this song, and you had the setting at this stadium, and then, you know, when... When Guitar Hero World Tour came out and they introduced the drum element, and of course Rock Band was in the game by this point, and now you had two competing companies, then it became who can I license? Who can I who can I out license these guys with? And and all tons of bands from like the eighties and nineties ended up on on those games. And, you know, it was it wasn't just that era, of course. You ended up with, you know, some classic rock stuff, you know, like Tommy was on there mm-hmm. as a song to play. You had like police, you know, sting songs on there, which was super badass. Synchronicity two, which I thought was one of my favorite songs to play on <laughs> on uh, Guitar Hero. Um, yeah. And of course, Dragon Force and, you know, t- tons of cool bands like l- ended up on there. And so I, th- I credit that particular movement in games for really introducing people especially younger crowds to bands that were around before they were born and then them getting new light and you know i think it's to kind of mark that uh even more so um one of the designers uh of of guitar hero 3 was a gentleman named craig and lum who uh played in plays currently he's in heathen um, he played in Exodus for a while. He w- he worked for Activision. He was a game developer. He did you know Tony Hawk's Downhill Jam. He worked on um, some a couple of racing games. And uh, he's Cragen is fucking fantastic. And his old bands, uh, you know, Prototype also had songs on there. And he became quite well known for that. And so um, stuff like that. You have musicians who are actually developing some of these games. Um, huge impact on the stuff, not only the stuff that was chosen, but how the games themselves played out and made you feel like there was an experience. And now you have an experience to tie in to the Sonic experience. It's just, it's the perfect matching of audio and, and visual. And I'm to this day, those are probably among my, my favorite games ever. 
There was also uh, Rocksmith, uh, where you actually plugged in your real guitar. To, and yeah, and that's that's when you realize that all that work you put into fucking Guitar Hero didn't mean dick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because you realize that you can't play guitar, fool. You were hitting four buttons. In your, it was a rhythm game, and it was timing-based. Mm-hmm. And then you, you buy Rocksmith. But um, I actually, here's a funny story about Rocksmith. I got to prototype test Rocksmith before it launched. Oh, nice. Um, which was super badass. And I, I was at a conference for for GameStop, and I met the developers, and they gave me a they gave me a, a locked copy to take home with me and give them feedback on, and they also interviewed me at the show about what I thought about it because you know they had a guitar there, they had a Les Paul there, and uh, I plugged it in, and they they took me through all the steps on like you know hey here can you play guitar I was like yeah I can play guitar and they're like how good are you right? I'm like you know, I'm all right and so they tailored the game to my skill level. And they just turned it on and said, here, go, see what you can do. And it was really cool. Um, nice. So I really liked that aspect of it. But I watched people try to play Rocksmith, and it was an epic fail. And it never really did that well. It, which is really a shame because it was it was set on a premise of like playing a video game but learning to play guitar. It, it seemed like a good aid. It, it's it, really sad. That- you know why it failed? Because people bypassed the training element, and they went straight to, I just want to fucking play the songs like Guitar Hero. So the training element in there, I went through it even as somebody who already knew how to play. I was like, this is really cool. This is really in-depth. And it did what it said it was going to do. People just didn't do it. They just didn't, they didn't go there with it. And I was like, you guys are you're, you're missing the whole point. If you want to play fucking Guitar Hero, go play Guitar Hero. You know? right. But if you want to play Rocksmith, this is, this is designed first and foremost as, as an interactive instruction you know, system. And, and people just... For whatever reason, they just didn't buy into that, and it really kind of made me sad because the game tanked. It just didn't do well. That's a shame. Yeah, but it leads me to the final thing that uh, for this for this episode, we'll 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 end it on this, since we since we spent so much time on the glam rock scene, and I promise not every episode is going to be glam rock. It's just this one happened to be, but uh, here we are in 2020, the <laughs> turmoilish 2020. Thinking back on glam rock and its influence it's the it's steps from the 1980s to arguably 1990 blage uh where where it finally lost its mainstream appeal um it has held a lot of hatred from other other fan bases uh, of music including the metal genre yeah of course it's had many names hair band uh butt rock you know (laughs) Does it deserve its hate? Oh, listen, I, I've been on both sides of this spectrum. Um, it, it's kind of a genre that I love to hate, I guess I always say. Does it deserve its hate? I, I think there are bands out there that came in thinking that they were all that and they were epic fails, you know? And so, yeah, I, I think that there's there are specific bands that were just bad. They're just terrible. And they just, you know, they... they I don't know, mm-hmm. but as far as I guess I'm of the opinion now that even though glam is super easy to make fun of, and trust me, I've done it. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it, it's there's something that if you grew up listening to it, even for a small fraction of time, a lot of those songs are timeless, and you don't have to like them. But a mark of a good song is if 
you can hear that song and then you can sing that song or you can hum the tune to that song. And there's a lot of songs from that era that, that are still relevant today. Um, so again, if you can get past the imagery, you, you probably, and, and the labels, because yeah, I mean, it, it did, it got labeled a lot of different stuff. I mean, butt rock was always my favorite. Uh, <laughs> you know, and I got called a butt rocker a lot when I was a kid. These fucking butt rockers, you know, mm-hmm. um, I never got called a, like a glammy boy or anything like that. I, you know, it was always, you're a fucking butt rocker. And, um, Mr. You know, I'm wearing my Skid Row shirts and stuff like that. Even my, I had a Warrant shirt, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Warrant, man, I'm sorry, dude. Those guys were terrible. As much as I wanted to like them, and I, I really tried. I just they they provided that they were the right place, the right time, had the image, and I bought into it. And then I was like, wow, this is just really fucking bad, you know. So I I, I think it's I don't think it's worth the hate that it gets. But I understand the hate that it gets because the hate comes from the imagery, right? The hate mm-hmm. comes from, you know, kind of how they were classified as maybe they were guys that weren't, they didn't seem masculine. They didn't seem like they were singing manly songs and, and people criticize it like, dude, they're just trying to get chicks, you know, like, but it, who wasn't, you right. know? Um, it was an era, I think, that at its time when it happened, and I, I like to go back to D. Snyder, you know, he really, he really was trying to do something extreme and different. You know, David Bowie did the same thing. You know, he, he tried to kind of go along those same lines. It was different. You know, it was definitely a very British flavor and maybe not metal. But, you know, with, it was very glam, Ziggy Stardust, all that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. Um, you know, and, you know, Iggy Pop, you know, had that kind of element to him too, you know. Mm-hmm. So I, I just think that it's not deserving of the hate that it gets, and the the hate that it gets is, is in my opinion, mostly based off the fact that people remember what those people look like, and that's really <laughs> it's just easy. To, it's just so easy to make fun of it. I mean, you, if you watch a video now, you look at the look what the cat dragged in cover, you're gonna laugh because that cover's fucking retarded. Oh, they were you know, it's chicks. you know yeah it's it's crazy you look at the early motley crew stuff you know yeah how could you not make fun of it now but back then it was extreme so if you were around back then at some point you looked at that and said wow this is so different this is so out there this is so rebellious this is so anti-system this is what i want to be because it's just blowing people's minds good or bad it just it provided that that sense of um, you know individuality. I think at some point when it started, I think that's really what it was going for. And, and then just like any other scene, people capitalized on it, and the scene became saturated. And then it it died out. You know, so and you know, I guess whether or not you love grunge or hate it, you can basically thank grunge for killing glam. <laughs> right. You know, it's. Uh, you know, so I, I, I think that people that are musicians are way more open-minded to it. Um, people that are not musicians, um, it's really fucking easy to hate on it. So, because, you know, at least if you're a musician, you can look at a certain element and maybe respect it or, or maybe see what they're trying to accomplish. Um, you know, and then you look at a lot of those guys now, and even a lot of those dudes, are they're into heavier shit themselves, you know? So, you look back and go, eh, you know, I did this for a while and now I don't do this anymore. So I don't know. Who knows? You know, in 20 years, I'll look back on my, my death metal phase and I'll be like, man, look what a pussy I was. 
death metal and Satan and all that really pussy shit. (laughs) (laughs) Well, see, I'm going to, I'm going to slightly disagree with you, uh, (laughs) with the warrant thing with the, (laughs) okay. I agree. The band itself was garbage. Yeah. But, uh, (laughs) Janie Lane was a great songwriter. He was a great Hey, he was a he was a good performer and he's a cool dude. You know, but uh God God rest him. But uh that's the only thing I had to argue. It's like, wait a minute, Janie Janie was was hot, you know, the rest of the band, yeah. eh. <laughs> but, but Janie was hot. But uh I had the I had that dirty rotten filthy stinking rich t-shirt with the big fat guy that was covered in money. I had mm-hmm. that t-shirt and I thought it was so cool. <laughs> <laughs> but uh I think I think I don't think butt rock deserves yeah, butt rock <laughs> glam rock deserves. <laughs> <laughs> damn it, <laughs> just completely destroyed my point. I'm about to make. I don't think it deserves the hate and and discredit that it gets. Uh, if if I call anything for for glam rock for modern day, I call it a great gateway drug. Sure. Um, for people who don't listen to hard rock, heavy metal. You know, and you want to you want to experience it, but you don't want to automatically get slammed in the face with somebody like Cannibal Corpse. You know, <laughs> you know, perfect example. My kids, my kids grew up with their mother, and their mother had them listening to you know out here in Philadelphia. It's Q one hundred and two, but you know, basically the the hip hop R and B crap that they call music nowadays. And uh, I don't care my show; I can say it. It's crap, um, <laughs> but. You know, and and they were all about, it. and of course they were about Hannah Montana and all that shit too. And sure. I started introducing them to metal, and they didn't get Ozzy, and they didn't get Metallica yet because it was just a little too heavy for them. But when I introduced them to Bon Jovi, to Poison, where there's kind of a dance beat to it, but at the same time they they start hearing the actual musicianship that was in the music. And, and again, like you said, it's not like they were looking at the album covers or whatever. Right. You know, they started uh, getting an, gaining an appreciation for rock and metal through that. The same way as like myself, I gained an appreciation for hard rock and heavy metal because my mother and grandmother were teaching me fucking Everly brothers and, and, and uh, <laughs> you know, the beach boys and Elvis Presley, you know, it was a great, I think, I think glam rock is a great, gateway uh gateway step into a larger music scene uh for people who have not grown up with that scene to begin with so yeah i, I think that's its main legacy and and relevant or uh relevance in, in today's society is i think it definitely bridges the gap between people who prefer the dance the club the beat and the people who prefer the mosh the metal the satan you have that transition to allow you to discover a larger world. Yeah, for sure. Musically. Uh, Mike, I had an absolute blast in here bull- bullshitting with you about music. I hope you enjoyed this one. <laughs> oh, thank you, brother. This this went down a lot of rabbit holes that I didn't expect. So, uh, yeah, I'm always nostalgic about all the eras of music. So uh, it's been an honor to, to come on and, and hang out with you and, uh, and break the fourth wall and, you, you know, uh, carry on with the a topic that is very near and dear to my heart. So thank you for inviting me out. And uh, I'm looking forward to turning the tables on you here in a couple of weeks. Oh, yeah, I know. I know I got to come in, but I'll definitely have you back on, especially on In the Pit, because I, I, as we were talking, I already had two other uh, topics come to my head, one of which I thought you might appreciate being a thrash guy is uh, who's the better who's the better vocalist for Anthrax, Joey or John <laughs> Bush? <laughs> 
We'll save that one. There you go. <laughs> the other one I'll keep to myself. Nice. <laughs> Guys, if you enjoyed this episode and, of course, Breaking the Fourth Wall, make sure you hit that thumbs up button. Like, share, comment, subscribe. Check out all the other great podcasts at Realm of the Miss Entertainment. And, of course, if you prefer us in audio-only format, we got you covered. Check us out on Anchor.fm, Apple iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever quality podcasts can be heard. And one more time, Mr. Mike, tell them where they can find you. You can find Misery Point Radio on all of those same platforms where you can find Realm of the Mist and all that awesomeness. Uh, Check it out on YouTube, iHeartRadio, Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, you name it. Uh, And, uh, of course, feel free to shoot me an email anytime, miserypointradio at gmail.com. If you got questions, comments, you want to really dive deep into more hair metal, you want to you want to call me names because I made fun of Warrant, by all means, man, call me out. I'll, I'll go down that rabbit hole with you. I, I, I'm, I'm debating, like, this is going to be connected to Breaking the Fourth Wall, but I'm debating if I'm not going to release it as an individual episode as well for, for you know, in the pit. And I know we're going to catch so much flack in the comments section. <laughs> How can you guys hey, if you want to question my musical credibility, I'll fucking take you on. Yeah, you can question mine, and I can't argue <laughs> it. But, yeah, you, go ahead. Fight him. <laughs> I've learned in the uh, hour and a half I've been sitting here talking to him that this guy's a fucking metal encyclopedia. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> guys, thank you very much for joining us, and we'll catch you on the next In the Pit. Yeah. Have a good night. Hey guys, it's Chris from Realm of the Mist Entertainment. If you enjoyed this video, please hit that thumbs up button. Like, share, comment, subscribe. Check out all the other great podcasts that can be found on Realm of the Mist Entertainment's YouTube channel or our sister channel, Sounds Dicey Gaming, for all your tabletop needs. And if you prefer your podcasts in audio-only format, check out Realm of the Mist Entertainment on Anchor.fm, Apple iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever quality podcasts can be heard. To our Patreon supporters, we thank you very, very much. And if you're interested in being a Patreon supporter, please go over to patreon.com slash realm of the mist. And just a dollar a month gives you exclusive content and helps our channel out greatly. Guys, again, thank you very much for joining us and we will see you on the next episode.